I think it was the theologians who first started the idea, later the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. What you are comes out in what you do. You see the point? Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. This is Chats Under the Sun with Jacob Volk. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right. Cheers, Cheers. Oh, splashing beer on you. Yeah, the problem with cans is they don't clink very well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. What are we drinking? Um, Royal City Brewing Co. Uh, beer with honey. So for anybody who likes tea with honey, this this will be your drink. It's really good, actually. I quite like it. Hmm. <clears throat> Fred Heiberg. How are you doing, my man? I'm I'm doing great. It's good. Um, yeah. I'm okay. I'm thrilled. I'm so excited <laughs> to be having this conversation because this is hopefully this is going to be basically just a rehash of so many of the really good conversations that the two of us have had over years. Is it now? Uh, I met you at well. Okay, so this is where uh, probably the honest part of me. I used to think you. I used to think you were kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> when I was dating Lindsay, you know, I, I used to be one of those blind reprobate sheep. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't into theology. I wasn't into all that stuff. And I just think, wow, Jake is, Jake's a bit of a nerd. <laughs> a a bit of a people's. nerd. I don't know. I, didn't, I just, I don't know. I, you know, you just had this vibe in your church. A lot of people thought, oh, Jake's kind of weird. Jake's kind of weird. And I probably just kind of slid right into that. Um, but over the years, as I got into reading, really uh, studying the Bible, um, reading theology, philosophy, whatever, I would now and then like see something you said on Facebook shared or whatever. Be like, oh, this guy, you know. I, one time, I want to like reach out to him and say, uh, you're, "You're a cool guy." <laughs> I think we could be friends one day. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that you were into theology or anything until i met your roots oh yeah. and we're hanging out with our homeless fam and all of a sudden some topic came up and you were just talking about it and i'm like hey whoa you you read books and you know a lot about what we're talking about yeah I, th- we- I think we were talking about um genesis and the flood or were we? yeah this is i mean this is i think because i can remember we were sitting by that shelf over there mm. or standing there you know it was interesting we're actually at the house the roots house that we that we um spend time in every week hanging out with the homeless fam so we're going to dive into a bunch of biblical topics mostly biblical theology maybe some systematic theology just a bunch of bunch of good topics <laughs> and we've talked a good amount about what we want this kind of conversation to be because we both are passionate about this topic. Mm -hmm. We care a lot about it and it's been really meaningful for us. But I wanted to have a bit of a preamble before we dive into the meat and potatoes of the conversation. A disclaimer. Yeah, a disclaimer is a good one. (laughs) Um, And it's cool because we have a podcast. So we have all the world, all the time in the world to lay out some ground rules is not the right word framework for having this kind of conversation Mm. 
Um, and I guess the first major point is neither one of us are professionals, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I'm headed in the quote-unquote professional Bible, Bible nerd direction, which is awesome. I'm getting the holy degree, the MDiv. I won't, air, air quotes, just for anyone who misses that. <laughs> but um, but you've read an incredible amount on a lot of these topics. I'm just going to say that. Yeah. Way more than I have. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say... Uh, I would say digested, maybe, because, yeah, I, ha- I do tons of podcasts um lectures on youtube Mm -hmm. it's it's my hobby when i have free time that's what i want to do right to the point where i feel when i'm not doing it i feel like i'm wasting my life which is probably not a good thing but sure but you also like you read the scientific papers that the books i read (laughs) reference sure yeah so you go to the original source more philosophy but i'm not really interested in like science right as much as philosophy Mm -hmm. but yeah anyways yeah did i say scientific papers yeah, whatever. It's cool. I get you. Literary papers, like uh, whatever, whatever the uh, PhD level stuff. Yeah, you get my point, yeah. right? Um, but despite that, neither one of us are professionals, right? Even though I think we can hopefully have some valuable conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, the the things that we talk about when it comes to biblical theology and, and biblical tools and and understandings of various theological ideas, they've been the reason that we're talking about them is because they've been really important for both of us in our like walk with Christ. Mm-hmm. It's been like really grab like grappling with some of these ideas that have helped me unlock the Bible to a huge degree. And that in turn has like led to me loving God more. So these aren't just ideas for the sake of ideas. They're actually have like, they walk back and end in a place where I can, love God and love my neighbor more. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, I, I think Jake, you can probably agree with me. I think he, well, you do because we've had this chat before, but maybe it's a, it's a process of uh, maturing or, or sanctifying that you realize when you first get into you know, you read you read maybe one blog post on theology, and you're just ready to crush all these these plebs <laughs> that don't know anything. Um, and but the more you read, the more humble you become because you realize how little you know about a very, 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 very complex topic. Totally. So, um, yeah, I mean, there was a certain topic that first got me into theology. Um, it was my gateway drug, and I remember getting into a big argument with uh certain people i won't say who but until this day i forget i i regret it because i was so dogmatic i was so um just like no it's got to be this way because i i just i had just kind of been exposed Mm -hmm. to the world of oh there's a different way of thinking about um doctrine x anyways my point is is even though there was a true desire to understand God's word better. It can come, mm-hmm. it can very easily sort of um, create bad fruits yep. <laughs> of, of pride or, or, you know, you look at other people in a condescending way and that you should always strive to yep. not be a, like to get away from. hundred <laughs> percent. I definitely did this with back in the day with baptism right? Because I'm a bit of a closet Baptist. Um, maybe really? less less oh. closet now because I'm going to Southern, but 
I weaponized <laughs> my my desire to understand baptism more, and it was mm-hmm. it, I did it very rarely was it helpful because it was more just me machine gunning my ideas and, and controversial points in a way that was a weapon, mm-hmm. you know, not very helpful. But I guess um, all that to say is, if this conversation goes into some controversial areas, or or people disagree with disagree with what we're going to talk about be kind to us because we're learning we're growing but we've also put a lot of thought into some of these concepts and i think they're valuable and i think they're important and even i don't know the two of us might disagree on on a few things but once you i I think you learn a level of grace for people's different theological opinions when you start consuming a lot of them and exactly like you said, you realize how dumb you are on a whole mm-hmm. bunch of things. Yes. Um, so, yeah, this might get controversial. I don't know. We'll have to. We'll have to see. <laughs> but one thing for sure. One thing that that just should be said, at least on my side, for sure, for your side, is um, my views do not necessarily reflect the views of my church. Uh, love my church. Love my church to bits. But we. Might, I might have some slight theological differences with them. And that's a that's a broad statement, but it's true. So, and the same is true for for you, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I I like getting into these kind of discussions, but often I get the question, "Oh, does your dad know you hold this view?" And, and <laughs> no, no. Me and my dad have never had a theological discussion. No, <laughs> my dad probably knows, and it high chance he does he doesn't agree, but. You know, um, or or another question is, oh, what church do you go to? Because immediately when you bring up some topic, they assume that you learned it from your pastor. But I think, yeah, as Jake is saying, it's important to say, I love my church. I love my pastor and his wife. They're good friends of ours. And yeah, the church is an awesome place. But I want to be very clear. I do not necessarily represent all the church stands yeah. for. So 100%. So having said that, Hopefully we've uh, covered our bases properly. <laughs> All hate mail can be sent to you, not me. <laughs> um, we wanted to, how did you frame it? What was the word you used? Helpful tools for understanding the Bible? You, you had a phrase yeah. that you liked. Yeah, just like tools that I have learned and Jake has learned over, over time for when we read the Bible. Tools for not having, um, trying to... I mean, we can talk about this later, but basically trying to defend the Bible of something it's not claiming to be. And and mm. you can use tools to understand what and how to interpret the Bible in, in, in order to, yeah, just, no, I'm kind of butchering my words here, but. It's all good. Um, it's all good. So the yeah. tools, there's kind of like a set of ideas and set of kind of preloaded concepts that we have that are really helpful to have in your mind before you go into looking at any passage of the Bible, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of these ideas, um, I think this is more the realm of biblical theology, can be really helpful when you come to tricky areas or controversial areas. So did you have a, a particular tool that you want to start with or an idea that you like the most? Um, I, th- I think what's really helpful for me, something that I only really uh, kind of stumbled on a few years ago was... And at first I thought it was a liberal concept, um, but then I went to a Gospel Coalition thing and the blessed Don Carson said it. So <laughs> I was like, oh, well, it must be pretty conservative. But basically the idea that 
you know, we've, we've all heard this word inerrancy. Um, and a lot of people will say the Bible, that means the Bible has no mistakes, but what, what, what a, a good definition of inerrancy for, um, I would say for the, for an average, uh, for, for an evangelical Christian would be that the Bible is without error or is truthful and in all that it teaches, hmm. not in all that it says. And that's a very important distinction that I'm making. Um, yeah. I don't know. If- yeah. Well then when you say something like that, the first thing that would be, well, it'd be helpful is to put a, uh, an example to that, right? Because I think the immediate response would be like, uh, no, it is truthful in all that it says. And there's a few really helpful examples that I've found and mm-hmm. that you've found that kind of bear out that principle. Sure. So, uh, okay. Before I, before I, uh, give some examples, I want to kind of maybe hash this out a bit more. Mm-hmm. There's this thing called, uh, speech act theory, uh, speech act theory, is basically a way of explaining how we communicate with people. Mm-hmm. And it so you have, take the phrase, the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Um, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth is the what in speech act theory is called the locution. It is just the words. And then there is the illocution, which is the intended meaning behind those words, or the intended meaning of those words. Um and this is an important distinction because um, often people say, you know, I can read the Bible for myself. I don't need study Bibles or commentaries or people, you know, we don't need all these scholars telling us we can read the Bible. It's that plain, that simple. But it's important to remember that um, there's a difference between what something says and what it means. Hmm. And so um, in, in another way of talking about Scripture being God-breathed or authoritative is to say that the illocution of the text is God breathed. The intended meaning behind the intended meaning of the texts is God breathed, not necessarily the words themselves, but what, what the author is trying to say through those words. Right. Um, and I mean, we can get into this more, but a really good, a good example, I think is in Genesis 30, where, you know, Laban, Laban and Jacob, they've had a, a interesting time so far. And uh, finally, Laban's like, you know, Jacob's going to leave. He's sick of this. And Laban's like, oh, please stay with me. Stay with me. So Laban's like, fine. You know what? I want, I don't want any money. But what I want are all your speckled goats. All right. And Jake, uh, Laban's like, sure, fine. So Laban takes all his, uh, gives all the speckled goats to uh, Jacob and Jacob uh, begins to tend to this flock, and basically, all the every time the animals reproduce, the I think the solid and the striped ones go to Laban, but the speckled ones Jacob gets. I might be kind of I'm paraphrasing the story. Anyways, um, what's interesting is in the story, Jacob, when these animals go up to the water troughs to breed, he he gets three different kinds of wood and he peels the sticks. And what it seems to imply in the text is that Jacob is peeling these sticks so that when the animals breed, that they will produce uh, like speckled offspring. 
Um, and this is very odd. I think if 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 you were trying to defend sort of a view of of scripture that says, um, you know, everything the Bible says is true, you can have a tough time because it says that Jacob is peeling sticks so that his animals, when they breed, they reproduce speckled animals, uh, speckled offspring. But it's just, I think this is a good example. The, the point the author is trying to make is not that Jacob is um, necessarily, he's got all the right tricks and he actually knows how to breed animals properly and when they, he peels sticks that they reproduce with, with speckles. Rather, the author is saying that God is with hmm. Jacob in this time. Jacob is using what, to him would be maybe a common sort of, uh, I don't know, superstition in his day of how to get the animals to look a certain way when they're born. Um, but God is blessing that procedure because that is the story of, of Genesis, right? God is with Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. He's mm. with, he says, I will be with you. I will be, you will be fruitful. You will multiply. And so God blesses Abraham's, or, sorry, Jacob's journey. Right. And so I think, does that kind of make sense? Like totally, this is totally. just an example of you don't have to defend something that the author is not trying to say. So an example, a practical outpouring of that would be if, if you're in a situation where an atheist is coming at you and saying, this is nonsense. Like, uh, you know, clinical trials have proven that whatever splitting sticks does not in fact produce speckled offspring. <laughs> yeah. You can pretty confidently go to them and say, that's cool. That's besides the point. That's not... Mm-hmm. That is not, the biblical author is not laying out a genetic treatise here. He's putting forward a different position that God was with Jacob. And there's a whole interesting discussion to be had about exactly what he was doing. And there might be some hyperlink in the Bible there that we don't understand. I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so really quickly, the locution is, the locution of that text is Jacob, you know, he's breeding the animals, he's peeling sticks so that they produce speckled offspring but the illocution is god is with jacob and he is going to take care of jacob mm-hmm. he's not going to let laban <clears throat> cheat him out of you know money or whatever right <clears throat> another good example of this is um when jesus says he's using the example of the mustard seed and he says that the mustard seed is the smallest seed um, on earth or smallest seed in the world something like that and the reality is it's just not right there are smaller seeds but the point of the story is is Jesus is not Jesus is using re, like casual ordinary language in order to communicate you know the theological truth that he's trying to teach he's not putting forward a scientific an analysis of seed sizes and and it's if you and this this might seem i don't know if we have some more examples of this specific issue it might seem kind of trivial some people are like, yeah, who cares? But it does bore out because if you think that if you hold to sort of a really simplistic view of inspiration and, and the inerrancy of the Bible, you very quickly run into a lot of issues mm-hmm. like the plain and simple fact that a mustard seed is not the smallest seed in the world. <laughs> yeah. It's just not. Did yeah. Jesus lie? And if, if, you're, <laughs> if you're super literal, then you, that actually does become a giant problem. Yeah. Unless you, but if you are kind of with this locution illocution concept you you can kind of understand some of these interactions um do you have any other examples of, of where this where this comes out yeah i do um 
Okay, so Philippians 2, the very famous, um, what they would think is an early hymn about Jesus. Um, <clears throat> you know, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used, right? So it goes on and on with that hymn. Now, this is uh, interesting. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Now here it is. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. So a lot of, whether it's Paul actually believes this or not, a lot of scholars think Paul is referring to the three-decade universe, or the three-tiered universe, which is an ancient underway, an ancient understanding of how, yeah, the world is shaped. You mm. sort of have the heavens, then you have the earth, then you have this abode under the earth. Um, in fact, actually, I think that that's where, like, the underworld and, and all these right. things. Like, there is this place under the earth. Would where, that be uh, Sheol as well? The, yeah, the, yeah. The Hebrew concept? Yeah, and um, it's, you know, it doesn't, it's not, he, Paul does probably not have um, a spherical earth here in mind that, like we would, uh, with, you know, uh, galaxies and all that stuff, and then, you know, just the earth's core being under, um, under the dirt, like basically when you go down and mm. down into the earth, it, you finally get to the core. No, he has a different conception of what, what the what the world looks like as a whole and if this is the case i'm not necessarily saying this is the case because there is it is disputed but this is another it would be another point if this is the case that he does hold to this three-decade universe and you can just search three-tiered three-decade universe on google and you'll see what i'm talking about but if this is the case it doesn't undermine what paul is saying paul is saying that jesus becoming human um, being obe obedient to the point of death, dying on the cross, is was now is now glorified by the Father, and He is King over everything, every mm. single realm on you know in the entire universe. Jesus is Lord of. That's what Paul is saying. He's not affirming. He's not teaching you that you know <laughs> about what the world looks, what the world is structured right. like. Uh, this sort of the yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> totally. Totally, and it, it kind of um, this is this is, I think, kind of gets at another really complex issue is how much are the biblical authors allowed to be wrong only because of a limitation of the times they were in, without that transferring to the like because we believe that the substance of what they talked about was true. Right? Mm -hmm. So, like what you're saying, maybe we don't know this, but maybe Paul did have that three tiered universe. And he maybe he even did have a pretty general conception that it was those under the earth, that Sheol was a realm deep down below, and mm -hmm. that's where souls went. And our cosmology would be like, well, there's a bunch of rock down there. We're pretty <laughs> sure there's not a, yeah. we're pretty sure Sheol, like the, the abyss is not a giant cavern in, in, in the ground. Yeah. It's, it's entirely possible Paul just, due to the limitation of his time, didn't understand that. And that's okay. Because God doesn't have to, and didn't for that matter, zap every author 
with a perfect understanding of all modern science, quantum theory, and every single thing under the sun mm-hmm. that we know. And for that matter, all the next hundreds and hundreds of years of scientific understandings we don't know yet, mm-hmm. in order for them to be able to write down absolute truths about who God is and, and what God calls of us. And that's cool. The fact that God loves to use authors and people where they're at despite the limitations of their time i think that's i think that's actually beautiful you know what I mean? yeah 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 and and yeah god accommodates people where they're at you don't we do not need to defend the thoughts of the authors of scripture because scripture does not claim that every single thought of the apostle paul or you know of isaiah or moses that every single thought process of theirs was inspired no Mm. scripture claims that everything that they intended by what they wrote down is inspired all all scripture is god breathed so that's that's important because i i remember growing up thinking like oh wow what what if the authors of scripture thought the world was flat oh you know worldview shattered but this is an example of something that i found very helpful Mm. Scripture, it, 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 the author's other thoughts that they have when they come and they write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit do not have to be inspired, <laughs> basically. Right. Yep. Yeah. Any other examples in, in this kind of sphere that you've got? Because I have another kind of topic. Um, yeah. We. I mean, so I just... Uh, Okay, so like you don't have to defend. Um, I think you've talked about this in the past, but um, you don't have to defend the number discrepancies in the Bible because I I really don't think the authors of Scripture are trying to give you, and they're not trying to do uh, math like ac- accurate maths where they go, oh, you know, how many gold bowls were taken from the uh, the temple in the exile? Like they're not concerned about that. Like they're they're giving you a number, but that's not mm. their overall point in what they're saying right and so we don't need to write books about why they had the numbers wrong and the exegesis you know uh, it's modern people messing it up no it's if they got it wrong it's 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 not a big deal so that's an important important point um i would imagine there's a lot of people who might be listening to this who don't know that there are discrepancies of that kind in the bible Mm -hmm. and for a start a lot of these, and specifically with numbers, right? So it's either how many men um, in Israel's army were counted at various different points um, and, and other things. A lot of those numbers can be solved properly, right? They they viewed numbers, they would maybe count a camp as this many people in this context or a camp as, or squadron or legion as this mm-hmm. many people in another context. There's really smart ways that they can sort through what we would perceive as discrepancies. Despite that, there still are very real differences in the accounts, right? When Chronicles looks at this issue and Kings talks about the same thing, sometimes there's differences in the numbers that that they account. That's just fact. That exists in the Bible. You can research it up yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I think for most of us, the strategy for dealing with that is just don't ever talk about that. Mm-hmm. and kind of keep rolling with your life. Mm-hmm. And if you're a kid, and this was me for certain issues, not these ones in particular, but if you're a kid and you're 19 and you find out some of these things, like there are just different 
discrepancies in, in certain numbers. I wish I had some of the ones that as examples of, of, of them on hand, but I don't. That really hurts because you feel a little bit like your church has lied to you. Like you have this idea of like inerrancy of scripture. Every single word is like, you know, pure tablets of gold handed from the sky. Mm-hmm. And I think you, for me, growing to appreciate the fact that these are very real historical documents and sometimes really, really old historical documents have a couple of numbers swapped around and that doesn't compromise the integrity of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Huge. Like coming to peace with that has been really helpful for me because I don't, then I don't get like, you're right. I don't get into endless conversations about like, or even the ages of the, um, the not patriarchs. patriarchs. Yeah. The age of the patriarchs, like the, um, you would know these better. The, what's the Masoretic texts? Uh, yeah, the, the Masoretic um, Samaritan Pentateuch and the Septuagint. Right. All three of them record the ages differently. And they're all, to certain levels, reliable manuscript traditions. And the best theory that we have at this point is that the numbers are functioning very differently um, than pure numbers, right? Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to look into that, right? Like... Um, the I don't know Hebrew, and I would love to have on this podcast someone who does at some point. But I know that the Hebrew um, letter system was used as their number system. So the mm-hmm. the word Torah um, is the word for six hundred and thirteen, um, and there are six hundred and thirteen laws in the Torah. So there's a little bit of synergism there. Maybe the numbers in the uh, the patriarchs are serving some sort of literary function that we don't know yet. Mm-hmm why they would be different in different languages. Maybe that's why. Um, that's just the best theory I've heard. I don't know if you know any more about this, but I think there's something going on there that we don't understand. But it is interesting to know that different manuscript traditions have different numbers for those guys. Yeah. And so if you think that the authors, in order to be inspired, had to have had those numbers correct, or it means they weren't inspired... You got a big problem on your hands. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think um, what 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 you're saying is yeah, it's totally true. I mean, like Lamech, who is the seventh from Adam. I, I might be butchering this, but like, th- th- there's certain numbers in there that are so seemingly symbolic that okay if so-and-so died on this time he he did a really good job of getting (laughs) in the right sort of number like something like 777 years old right um but okay so we have to remember the israelites had neighbors just like us they had other peoples around them people Mm. who disagreed with them people who thought differently than them and when there's people around us that think differently than us, their ideas are up in the environment that we, in, in the thinking space, right? And so when we talk to our own people, we want to be able to give reasons for why we believe X, why we believe Y, why we believe Z. Mm-hmm. So this is really important, at least in part, for understanding the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11. Might have the chapter wrong there. Because there is a contemporary list to the genealogies that is very similar, and that is the Sumerians' kings list, and they have found this in numerous places. And 
what's really interesting is that you have very long lifespans prior to the flood and then after the flood the lifespans drop radically right another parallel is um you have the seventh from adam or the in in the genesis stories the seventh from adam goes to be taken with god in these sumerian kings list the seventh he's a king he goes to visit the gods um like these are the scholars pick these up and they see oh there's there's these the uh, the israelites and the you know the sumerians whoever they're they're talking to each other and they're saying oh, i don't know if i like that idea yeah I, I, that's cool that's cool but i disagree with you where that you know that knowledge or whatever that's coming from and that shouldn't make us scared because it just makes the bible more historical the bible is rooted in history you know it it shouldn't worry us that the authors of scripture are talking to their neighbors about things they have. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And in order to talk with neighbors, it necessitates that you use common language and common symbols mm-hmm. and common, common understood categories in mm-hmm. order to work with like with these um, conversations. A big one that I've heard a lot is the Bible's written for us but not to us mm-hmm. and getting that right is really important. So is it with, um, is it this, do you, do you remember this? I, there's a sea dragon that's referenced in Genesis. Oh, do you remember this? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, if I have to be honest, I, it is disputed if it's talking about it, okay. but yeah, it's, it is, um, t, uh, is it I want to say Tiamat. Yeah. Right. Um, that it's just this idea. I should look that up more. I should really get into that. But if anything, what the what the story is communicating is that God was the creative force behind all of creation. And if in that story there's a subtle jab or um, what's polemic? the word? Polemic, that's mm-hmm. it. There's a polemic against these other religions. And this happens a lot in the Bible. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, a lot in the prophets and a good oh, yeah. amount in Genesis <laughs> yeah. that the story is being crafted not only as an account of what happened, but also as a polemic, which is a how would you define that? That's a yeah. A polemic is is a is an attack. Is sort of an attack against your opponent, um, mm-hmm. but in a in a crafty way, a, li- a literary way. I'd say. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, a good example is uh, well in the New Testament, Jesus is is the Son of Man who will come on the cloud cl- clouds mm-hmm. to the ancient of days you know he's alluding to daniel 7 but in the old testament it's yahweh who rides the clouds well what is that playing off of it's playing off of baal baal is the cloud rider he's the storm god in canaanite religion so the other scripture are going yeah no no it's yahweh okay guys like right. <laughs> relax you know we, we got this we they're they're communicating with their neighbors because yeah they gotta they gotta push back at what their neighbors are saying right so be something <laughs> like Daniel would have heard or, or been or been very commonly understood this story of Baal riding the clouds and in his prophetic way of writing whatever that looked like with the Holy Spirit inspiring him he reimagined recrafted that story in a way that was exactly what we said like no 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 Yahweh is the one riding the clouds. And Daniel 7 is one of the most important passages in the Bible. For understanding Jesus. 100%. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. referenced himself as, you know, as the son of man um, mm-hmm. coming on the clouds and as ascending. 
that was one of his biggest motifs and that's what like pissed the pharisees off to no end Mm -hmm. because that was a very very clear way of saying i am god or i am the man to be sitting with god without saying i'm king which would have triggered the romans but also being able to get at the pharisees and yeah 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 thrilled about that yeah yeah um i can think of so one possible example might be the creation of the sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day. Ooh, this is juicy. Um, this might very well be a polemic. Remember, the nations around them worship these astral de- these astral beings uh, as deities. Um, and so, oh, hey guys, look, the plants, they're around before the sun, moon, stars. Uh, what does that say about the sun, moon, and stars role? They're really not doing anything for these... <laughs> You know the plants and and all that stuff. So um, the the authors, they're yeah, like you said, they're they're poking at their neighbors. Yeah, they're saying no. You, you know the gods you serve, they're actually powerless. Um, <clears throat> and I don't want people to miss um, what you're saying and what I'm saying here. The author of Genesis understood that these nations viewed the sun, moon, and stars as deities and arrange the telling of Genesis to communicate very specific jabs at these people, right? Yeah. Um, and even like, and if you start looking through the Bible, look up, look up stars, look up sun, moon, and stars, and you'll see that they're tied with spiritual beings and mm-hmm. worship all the time. Yeah. It's in, it's in Stephen's speech. Oh yeah. Says, <laughs> I was just going to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like um, that you gave yourself up to the, to the star of your God, Rephim, like, Sun, moon, and stars are constant mm-hmm. stumbling blocks for Israel throughout their entire nation. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that they would, like, this isn't a minor step. We don't think about this, but their Canaanite neighbors, they're like all of these nations around Israel. Sun, moon, and stars, like the spiritual beings that they worshiped, big deal. That's like, those their gods. Mm-hmm. Of course, Genesis, the creation of the world, it's going to have something to say about what those spiritual beings place is in ordered universe. And we might not pick that up because we're just like, well, some moon stars, big balls of gas. God made them cool. <laughs> yeah. But there is a, there's another layer. And this is why I love, I love talking about this stuff so much is you start to unlock the depth of these documents when you appreciate their historical context and see that the, the straight up, the, the writers involved, writer, Moses, however that looks for Genesis, especially the first couple, cha- three chapters, straight genius. Mm-hmm. There are levels to this game. And I just like, I, I get so thrilled. Yeah I, yeah. I love this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I can think of quite a few examples, but, um, and there, there, there's so many examples, but like we are bare, we're kind of scatterbrained, barely scratching the surface of this kind of discussion. Yeah. Yeah. So a really, uh, pop, a good example is Genesis, uh, six, uh, one to four, where it says, uh, the sons of God came down to the children of woman, uh, children of uh, the woman of, I forget how it goes, but anyways, the you know, you guys know. Time to the daughters of men. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and that's in in the scriptures that is portrayed as a very negative event. Um, in the Babylonian, the Babylonians had a similar story, but it's not negative. Rather, the um, these are kings uh, who get divine knowledge from the gods, 
and they bring it down or these these gods bring down divine knowledge to kings and it's a good thing and so the authors of scripture are saying yeah no these people who came down they weren't good they weren't good people they did wickedness on the earth mm. you know they're again they're they're jabbing at their neighbors they're saying yeah no it's not a good thing what happened in this uh, whatever this right. event was in history Michael Heiser has a great book called The Unseen Realm. Yeah, that ha- deals with a lot of if you're if if you're listening to this going like whoa 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 sons <laughs> of God, uh, angels, um, like stars. What what what? We're covering a lot of ground very quickly. Um, Heiser's book Unseen Realm, deep, really good, mm-hmm. really good um, on this subject specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and um, I think really we were we our ultimate point was to say this is this is a tool for interpreting scripture. Do not get so caught up on on sort of the peripherals of the text, but rather what the author is trying to say through um, you know whatever hmm. we'll take whatever book you want, but what is he trying to say there to you? And 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 um, and the fact that um, sometimes it is possible that the authors of Scripture may have had false beliefs, but that doesn't matter because God, uh, what what is inspired is what they intended to say. It's not their beliefs; it's what what sorry, not what they intended to say, what they said, and what their intention through what they said was. Um, and that's we're just giving kind of like throwing random examples out. This is it's. What, it's hard for me to communicate how deep this is because what we're saying is popcorn. Like on any subject that we mention, there's books and books oh yeah and yeah books, mm-hmm. and so, and it's unfortunate in some regard that we aren't about forty years older than we are, and we can like very <laughs> clearly articulate this kind of thing. Yeah. But we're doing the best we can with how old we are, I guess, and how much we've read, which is not nearly yeah. as much as I'd like to have read. Yeah, I mean. You know, I always, I'm not smart. I just regurgitate what other people say. <laughs> yeah. So I have another, uh, another, another, uh, screwdriver in this tool belt that we're building. Hmm. Um, when the gospel authors wrote down what they wrote, they were not writing biographies in the same way we would want a biography written. Mm hmm. And a big example of this um, that I love is called the Markian Sandwich. So the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, and you can see this. All you have to do is just read the different accounts side by side. He splits up narratives. You looking for your uh, phone there? Yeah, I got it. Yeah. He splits up narratives. So there's the, um, the story of the uh, withering fig tree, right? Jesus curses the fig tree for not bearing fruit. Um, then, uh, Sorry. Curses the fig tree. Then they go and they have this big spat with the Pharisees. And then they come back and the disciples are like, whoa, the fig tree's withered. That's crazy. It's called the marking sandwich. Event, main event, closure of the event. Um, in the other gospels, it's just withered it and immediately just withered up. Mm-hmm. But Mark arranged that story intentionally, intentionally, literarily, to make a point. There's another one where uh, it's the... 12-year-old girl who had died, um, that story is started, I think, again, in Mark. It's interrupted with the woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. I'm pretty sure this is right. 
and then finishes with the story who the 12 year old who had died mm-hmm. again mark takes 12 12 you know death uncleanness like there's there's all these parallels and the other gospel writers don't have the story set up quite that way but mark does it because he's making points mm-hmm. over and over again um is it luke where he has the centurion say that this man was innocent versus the mm-hmm. this is the son of god do you remember Oh, well, yeah, between Matthew and Luke, I don't know. (laughs) Right. So between Matthew and Luke, I think it's Luke. Mm -hmm. One of the, um, one of the gospel writers has the centurion saying, surely this man is innocent. The other one says, surely this man was the son of God. And then you look at that, like you read them, they say different. The centurion Mm -hmm. said X and then the centurion said Y. It's, it could be cause for alarm, man. Like, is the Bible wrong? Mm-hmm. What did he say? And then if you have some understanding that, I think it's Luke. Let's go with Luke. I'm so sorry. If people, people find your Bible, look it up. <laughs> if, understand that Luke is advancing a, an argument, a point throughout his entire narrative of the innocence of Jesus. And if that culminates with the centurion saying, surely this man was innocent then that's Luke's point, his, his, mm-hmm. his argument the entire time. Did he actually say that? Maybe. Maybe he said it at a slightly different time. Maybe he said both things. We don't know. Or maybe he only really said this man is the son of God. But Luke felt the liberty to say that, to interpret it, if you will. Because clearly if someone's God, they are also innocent. Mm-hmm. There's small things like that which make us nervous, right? We're we're really kind of video camera style biographers. Mm-hmm. We want like very precise words because that's our Western mindset. Biblical authors didn't think like that. They had a level of mm-hmm. flexibility that, frankly, we're just not as comfortable with. And I, I yeah, I wish that I had at instant recall the specific example of that quite as well. But if if anyone's listening, look up the discrepancy and and mm-hmm. look up some of the commentaries on it. There's really good reasons good explanations and really interesting explanations as mm-hmm. to why they're different. And mm-hmm. I, again, this is stuff that I just, it gets me so fired up because it, it gives me another side, another slice of the Bible that makes me go, okay, Hey, Oh, I did not know this. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, so I think it was, I might have the author wrong about the author, Richard scholar, Richard Burridge first, kind of brought this idea forward in scholarship, New Testament scholarship, that the the Gospels, especially the synoptics, fit within the ancient genre of bios, or um, ancient biography, as we would call it. And ancient biography is not the same as what we would consider modern biography. There is more freedom to compress events, to rearrange mm. events, to... Um, yeah, just be a little more freeful. But that's that's okay because remember the we we should not make the Bi- we should not set up the Bible up a target for the Bible that it's not trying to defend. If the if the authors of scripture knew the kind of genre they were working with and they constructed Jesus in that genre, then we should then we should they're just it's it makes it more historical, right? It's if if they were to use a sort of 
style that's comes way later in history we should be like oh well where are they why are they mm. working with something that's so foreign to their their culture and their context um but that's not to say that there this the retellings of jesus are not accurate and and we can construct a a good and a beautiful picture of jesus the incarnate son of god mm. um and and if if anybody's interested i would suggest Scholars like Craig Keener, um, Richard Bauckham, Mike Lycona, uh, well, there, there's so many, but these are guys that talk about uh, the Synoptic Gospels as ancient biographies. <clears throat> so cool. I love how you actually know all these historical guys. <laughs> like that, that, I'm so thrilled about that. I'm so, uh, I'm kind of cheating because I'm right now I'm reading... Um, the Jesus Legend hmm. by Paul Eddy and Gregory Boyd, which is it's about five hundred pages, but it's it's so good, and uh, it's it's a case for the reliability of the synoptics, and yeah. it's it's a scholarly work, so it's not you know the Bible's hmm. inspired and therefore it's true. It's no no this is this is a critical examination, hmm. and um, but they're Christians, and yeah it's it's yeah it's so good. But I was just reading about uh, some some of these scholars, so yeah, and I feel like I. I exist very comfortably in the world between scholarship and the layperson, if mm -hmm. you will, um, because I, I can read, I can hack my way through some hit, some scholarship level work pretty mm -hmm. comfortably. Not as not as good as you, but I can get I can get through it. But I also, my passion is with trying to make the Bible as clear and life changing, simple life changing as possible. Mm -hmm. But I wish I could find ways, and hopefully we're doing this, to try and kind of get the average person a little more glimpse at what some of the scholarly conversations are, because they're so cool. Mm -hmm. But they just, they play by different rules and different conversations. So things that seem really weird, maybe to the average person, just cracking up in your Bible, loving Jesus, are are really normal for the scholarly approach of the Bible. There's a level of like criticism that is just mm -hmm. of the Bible that's comfortable even from people who love Jesus because they're used to the Bible as something to be validated and proved and dissected, mm -hmm. not just as something to live by. Although those who are Christians also love it and live yeah, by yeah. it. Right. Yeah. They've stepped into the arena when, when a Christian scholar puts his work out, you know, he publishes it through like Oxford or Baker or Erdemans mm -hmm. or whatever. He stepped into the arena. He can't just say willy nilly. He, he's got to back up his claims. He's got to, present his what he's got to say here are my biases you know this is my background right this is my case and he's got to make a good case you can't just like but that's that's good because we you know there's there's this there's this cultural idea that christians are stupid but i just the world of christian theologians and philosophers is massive and the amount of christians who are absolutely brilliant there mm. it's there's just so many you know um, shortly after I started reading, I just, ex I just keep discovering more. I'm like, oh, this guy, you know, he's, he dedicated his entire life to this small topic. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's so cool. Like there's so many Christians just coming together and making a case for, you know, the person of Jesus and his resurrection or whatever right. surrounding that, who God is, the, the mod, uh, understanding of who God is or whatever. Hmm. But yeah. Yeah. And if anyone, um, Maybe someone's listening to this and saying, ah, you're kind of, you're sucking the supernatural out of the Bible. Like, 
This is God we're talking about. How can you talk about literary designs and stuff mm-hmm. like that? Let me not push back on that and say that the fact that God cares so much about beauty and art and literary design that he would allow human authors to work in these conventions, I say that's awesome. But even on just maybe more of a safer level, no one who's a biblical scholar who's a true believer in Christ is doubting the resurrection. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, at all. All of them hold to a supernatural event that God raised up his son from the dead. Mm-hmm. That's just, that's firm, that's established. When you move past that, you're, you're getting into biblical criticism and biblical scholarship, but you're you're moving to what I think is usually called the liberal arena. Or, or no, is liberal still safer than that, I guess? Uh, no, liberal's pretty liberal. <laughs> okay, okay. When liberal's uh, Christianity is social like social gospel right right and i don't mean you know what you might think is a liberal church or when i speak liberal i mean (laughs) jesus wasn't really god you know he did not he was not the substitute for our sins he was not raised Mm. that's liberal christianity so it's not really even christianity yeah well i mean paul says if you know he's the most pitiable if christ has not raised from the dead that's all of us right um one other topic that maybe we can talk about unless is there somewhere in here that you still want to that you still want to talk about um i had something i was gonna say oh yeah yeah yeah. so i wanted to say something about so somebody might be like oh well where do you get this idea of that god sort of accommodates um to a broken people and yet he um he still he still works with them he's not starting a new document He's taking an old document and he's slowly editing it, changing the spelling mistakes, as it were. Um, where do you get this idea? Well, I think a very good example would be from Matthew 19, where, you know, they're they're asking Jesus about divorce. Like, so they said, mm. why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Jesus is talking about scripture, a part in scripture where it says that you can file a certificate of divorce, but he's saying this is not the ideal. God was working in a broken system. And I think that's, you know, especially when we get to Old Testament law and we see things like like slaves and we see things like if a man has, you know, five fives or whatever it's we we must remember that god this is not god's ideal remember the story of the bible is that heaven and earth were ripped apart in eden and god is slowly working through redemptive process to bring heaven and earth together which culminates in jesus christ the the incarnate logos who is the beginning of the remarriage of heaven and earth right but i i can't say how much i agree with that it with all due respect cheeses me to no end when people just casually call the law namely the mosaic law um a manifestation of god's will for people yeah perfect will or or perfect or his perfect revealed will Mm -hmm. that's just not first of all that's insane like read them Mm -hmm. but that's just not correct god met israel a 400-year-old slave nation who had been wrapped up in God knows what practices in, in Egypt 
and brought them out and and his law was a at least in part a narrative process of molding them into what he wanted them to be and yeah that's where you got laws that are like you read some of the laws about how they were supposed to treat their slave women captives and you're like gah yeah this is awful but respect the fact that that's how messed up israel was and god put checks and balances to that not outright slapping nose Mm -hmm. because you know and to some degree it's really arrogant because it's it's us saying why didn't god just bring them to our level of morality and it's like well we've also had (laughs) two thousand years of the christian tradition to seep (laughs) into our culture to bring us to some of the best things we have today like you know on the whole in north america if you're a woman and you get assaulted judgment will fall down on that Mm -hmm, man mm -hmm. right we have problems but we have we have some of the things that horrify us about the old testament are only because the redemptive history has worked to the point to christ and then worked from christ through the next two thousand years to bring us to where we are today that wasn't the case for israel Mm -hmm. and understanding that that law was given in such a way to a broken people, like you said, to begin the slow but steady process of molding them into God's, into um, God's covenant people, which ultimately failed project is, well, I mean, let's be honest, like Galatians basically calls it a failed project. Yeah. Right. It didn't work. Yeah. And I think part of the reason, (laughs) exactly. And part of the reason it didn't work is because it wasn't built to, to be perfect to be a perfect system it was no. never you know and yeah. we need the holy spirit the holy spirit is the linchpin for this whole discussion because mm-hmm. it was a set of laws no matter how perfect no matter how exact that god wants us to follow we will mess up mm-hmm. and israel messed up over and over again we need it and 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 moses and at the end of deuteronomy says this he says like you 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 need a circumcised heart. It's the only thing that's going to work, and that's what Christ came to do. The, the Holy Spirit in us and dwelling in us allows us to have a level of holiness that, both as in person and as a culture, like a new creation that was just never possible for mm-hmm. the old covenant people. Yeah. We're so I, I guess what you're saying, I'm just just no no that's good. What you're saying is um, respect. Look at what redemptive history is look at what was taking place and respect the time in redemptive history that you find it. And don't, in some ways, don't hold the Mosaic law to what Christ taught. Mm-hmm. Do hold it because Christ taught from the Mosaic law, like heavily, like everything. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's a story, it's a narrative, it came from there. But the Mosaic law is not what Christ taught. They're mm-hmm. different. They're very different. Mm-hmm. And they're different yeah. as part of the same substance of unfolding of god's will yeah yeah i'm really passionate i mean you you know me i'm a covenant (laughs) i love yeah i love talking about covenant critiquing yeah yeah, i'm not gonna i'm gonna bite this i i love understanding covenant theology how we think about covenant theology and some pretty heavy critiques against covenant theology that i have and how that relates to the unfolding of god's will where how we as christians understand the law and a lot of conversations wrapped up in there it's kind of a passion project of mine which i might discuss with with some other people at some point but i don't know we can go into that or not go into that but yeah yeah so i think maybe 
if we want to recommend some stuff. There's a six episode series by the Bible Project on the law. That's the Bible Project. Uh, I'm sure if you don't know about them, just search them on YouTube. But they also have a podcast. Mm-hmm. Really, really, really helpful. Um, I I've listened to it two or three times. It's just so helpful. Yeah. But also, so they have pause. They have two series on the law. Yeah. Right. Their very first one, episodes one and two, um, are episodes on the law. And then in the mid seventies, maybe they've got another. Is it six part episode in the law? Yeah, I think okay. so. Six, sure. Six, yeah. Both of them Five are. Both of them are phenomenal, in my opinion. Again, this does not reflect the recommendations of our <laughs> church. Um, but yeah. I found them. I you know, and anyone who knows me know that I will not shut up about how much the Bible Project has impacted my life. Oh yeah, totally. I I, I amen to that. Tomaki's uh, peace be a praise his name. <laughs> Anyways, um, another really, uh, this is a book I read years ago, but it was just so helpful to me as I struggled through this. Um, it's called Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copan. Um, if you want a more scholarly edition, look at Did God Command Genocide by Paul Copan and Matt Flanagan. And this talks about Old Testament violence, you know, the Canaanite conquest, Um because this, these are things non-Christians are going to bring to you. Like, oh, wow, Israel's just running in there and just slaughtering the Canaanites. Isn't that kind of odd for uh, the God incarnate Jesus who says, love your neighbor as yourself? Um, this, these are critiques from the outside. And mm. so we have to think about what, 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 how do these laws function? Um, what, what do we do with the violence in the Old Testament? Um, and so these are two books that I would recommend. And there's, there's so many books, but... Uh, yeah, two books. So, Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copan and Did Did God Command Genocide by Paul Copan and Matt Flanagan. I need to say this publicly. You are a deeper reader than I am <laughs> by a long shot. I haven't read the second one. Marcel has because it's quite a bit bigger. <laughs> sure, and we should, we should give a shout out to Mar- Marcel because... Um, the man's a beast. <laughs> he, does he read? Holy moly. Um, but I only have two mics at this point, so uh, you're you're the one who's getting the conversation. But he's been a large. This is your brother, right? Yeah, he's been a large part of some of the conversations we've had about varying topics like this. Yeah, yeah, and he's like, he's like one of my closest friends. So, um, yeah, we we're always exchanging ideas and yeah. 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 Anyways, you wanted to move on to something else, so darn it! I knew you were going to bring that up, and I forget where I was going to. Oh, that's what I was going to go. I have a friend who I have not seen in a long time who went to one of our Dutch Reformed churches. Mm-hmm. And she she kind of leftish the church, sort of, I, I guess. Left our churches. One of the things that she really, really struggled with was knowing how to differentiate parts of the Christian life and Mm. figure out their value. Because she had been more or less taught, maybe implicitly or explicitly, and not by her pastor, I don't think, but that, like, you know, we sing psalms, the organ is the instrument we use, Uh, don't buy things on Sunday, and Jesus died for your sins, and Jesus rose from the dead. Roughly is all about the same in level of importance. 
And for her, it was a bender to have to look through different things and be like, okay, okay, okay. And it might seem simple for me and you because, and maybe some people listening because we're comfortable with some of these things. But for her, it was hard to go through. Okay, hold up. I can actually go to a church with a guitar mm-hmm. and it's not sinful. Okay, okay. I haven't really ever been taught that. I thought that was always wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, some people buy things on Sunday and, and they don't seem like raging heretics. Okay. <laughs> so this Jesus dying on the cross, like, a, like he rose from the dead. Is that important? I heard this one person say that maybe he lives in all of us. Like for her to differentiate what was important was really, really difficult. And it took a lot of time for her to separate those things out. I'm really passionate about getting the order of the things that are important about being a Christian right. So Jesus being the actual son of God, coming as a man, living a life, perfect life, and dying on the cross as a substitute, penal substitution, all that, whatever, whatever term. <laughs> that's is at least most, one one of them. <laughs> okay, that's at least one. What whatever helpful term in that one is is good, and and actually physically rising from the dead in three days. Mm-hmm. That is the core of Christian faith. You don't get away from that miraculous act. Right. If you do, you're not a follower of Christ anymore. Yeah. Yep. Amen. And then you can get to several other very big primary issues. Um, and then some secondary issues that are really important, um, like the authority of scripture, I think barely counts as a secondary issue, maybe primary, I don't know. I, however you want to differentiate that out. And then you get to tertiary issues like baptism. Is that maybe primary? Is that is that like a secondary or a, or a tertiary issue or whatever it looks like? And then dress code for worship and, and style of music and stuff like that, that gets kind of distant third level, right? And so... For me, it's been so helpful in understanding the commonality that I have with so many Christians and where we disagree is important because I care about these subjects, but it's not worth splitting hairs over as part of my relationship with them. Bunch of Baptists going to buy stuff on Sunday. That's their understanding of the Sabbath. Do not get it misunderstood. Oh, no, not of the Sabbath. <laughs> sorry, sorry. You're doing. You're being too reformed there. The Sabbath is uh-huh. on Sunday, bro. I made my own. I made my own mistake. The Sabbath is not, in fact, Sunday. Good. Thank you for calling me out on that. Either way, they have a very. The Baptist who I buys something on it. Sunday is not just a lax Christian. They actually have a well thought out, systematic understanding yeah. of, of the Sabbath and the day of rest and the day of the Lord, or mm-hmm. all that stuff. Either way. Those issues are really interesting, and I'll spend an afternoon talking about, but they will not get in the way of what it means to be a brother or sister in Christ with those people. And then baptism is the same thing. Although important, will not get in the way. Mm-hmm. And then you get to your understanding of the literal, literalness or of Genesis and how some Christians might hold to uh, theistic. Yes, theistic is the, the better of the two, right? Yeah, an evolutionary I, understanding wrong. of of origins right um some christians might marry an evolutionary perspective in with their understanding of genesis and they have their reasons um i might push back on some of those reasons i might not but the point is they can do that and still hold to the absolute core of what it means to be a christian and i'm not willing to break faith with them as a brother in christ over these opinions mm-hmm I guess, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but that's something I care yeah. a lot about because it's it's a big important thing about judgment, right? If you believe that someone is sinning because they hold a different view of Genesis, Ooh, yeah. reconsider. 
yeah. really reconsider. That's that's that yeah. is getting dangerously close to. I'll let you go. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is an important thing you brought out because this is also very important as we approach the Bible. Um, I I'm I don't Jake has never told me this explicitly, but I'm kind of going to assume that he doesn't assume the Bible is true and therefore believe in Christianity. Rather, like myself, I believe in the Bible because I believe in Jesus, not believe in the Bible. So I, and then I believe in Jesus rather I believe in Mm -hmm. Jesus. And so I believe in the Bible. That's very important. You may say, well, Jesus is in the Bible. Well, remember the gospel stories were around long before the new Testament was um, a thing. The new Testament in its formal sort of first edition, let's say only comes around four or 500 years after, after Jesus. You're talking about the canon of the new Testament. Yeah. 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 As an identifiable substance. First the, published edition. <laughs> Use modern the, concepts. The, the letters have been around for obviously a lot yeah. earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Paul's letters. I mean, Paul's letters are earlier than some of the Gospels, right? Like, yeah. I mean, Paul's writing from the 40s to the 60s. Um, I mean, John's Gospel only comes uh, late first century. So, um, but this is important. We think the Bible is true because we believe that the stories surround the life death and resurrection of jesus and his followers are reliable so we're and that's that's a very important tool and so that is foundational for us it's not about oh if you you know if you deny a literal snake then you deny deny the cross no it, it just it's a completely different way of thinking that sort of thinking because it's 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 kind of making all things in scripture on the same level of important importance and what is core um so like william lane craig talks about a web uh, a spider web of belief and what's at center of the web is maybe uh, well is god the trinity jesus christ becoming a man the resurrection right these things are center and as you move out you have inerrancy of scripture you have uh you know, you, you just the keep sac- the different sacraments and the how they're Yeah, done, yeah, right. right. Um, how exactly faith and works work out. How hey, oh, that's not free important. will. Uh, all the, those things are all way in the, you know, they're way yeah. on the edge of the spider's web. Centered the, to the web is God, Jesus, God become man in Jesus Christ, and he redeems us from our brokenness. Um, our sin. Uh, I'm not just <laughs> sin, brokenness. Yeah. Bad imaging, all that stuff, you know. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, I guess I, I... I take it for granted sometimes because you and I and my other close friends, we've got this sort of... These levels really ingrained, right? So I can toss around different ideas about Genesis with you or Joe Michael or some of my other peers. And you know, with a shadow of a doubt... I'm not gonna. I'm not trying to weasel my way into thinking that Jesus didn't rise from the dead mm-hmm. because I'm denying some supernatural element of, of something about Genesis. Like that's that's not what I'm doing, and it's not the point, right? Mm-hmm. I have lost track of the amount of resources I've seen in my communities that just flat out say, "Well, if you don't, you know, if you don't believe it was literal snake." Or if you don't believe, if you even dare put some sort of gap theory in the first couple sentences mm-hmm. of Genesis, 
you're basically on your way to denying Jesus and you don't mm-hmm. believe the authority of the scriptures. And I want to scream because these are pastors who put this out that that is not what people who hold these positions or whatever version of these positions are trying to do. They're grappling with tensions between science and religion um, that sometimes do exist or perceived to exist. Mm -hmm. They're trying to work through a comprehensive, biblical, thoughtful understanding of like what Genesis means. And I'm focusing on Genesis because that's kind of the the locale of where a lot of the tension lies. Mm -hmm. And, and there's the people who love Jesus and they have a systematic, thoughtful way of piecing together the first few chapters of the Bible, along with a deep conviction of the rest of it and a deep love for Jesus and a renewed life in him. Mm-hmm. And sometimes our narrow slice, our Dutch reformed tradition has been guilty of kind of just brushing them all off as a bunch of liberals who don't know anything because mm-hmm. you don't hold to a quote unquote literalistic interpretation of Genesis. Mm-hmm. And I hope I haven't put forward exactly what I think because I'm still in the process of learning and thinking through a lot of, of what Genesis means exactly. The only thing I'm absolutely sure of is there is so much depth to those first two chapters. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's almost incomprehensible. You can study it your whole life and still only be Holy halfway. Cow. <laughs> like yeah. the words, like the fact that, that God has 10 acts of speaking and how that corresponds to the 10 words of the, of the 10 commandments Hmm. There's a little hyperlink that'll blow your mind and you can just chew on for about 20 yeah. minutes. Like there's, there's just the, so much depth. Yeah. And I love it to bits. Genesis one to 11 is like a Wikipedia document. That's entirely blue. Every single word you click and it goes somewhere in the Bible. Yep. It is so important for link, 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 link everywhere. It's, it's, you know, the words they're using are not just, Oh, I guess I'll use that word. No, they're using a certain word. For a reason, and mm. you might think I'm crazy, but I know you. You're reading that book by Salehammer. Just, uh, but if you, you you don't want to read, listen to the Bible Project. They will yep. highlight these links over and over again. You'll be like, "What? Never saw that ever." I know. It's so you cool. almost could begin to say that the Bible's a divine document. <laughs> it's Ooh. it's the divine Wikipedia. Or <laughs> <laughs> no, it's. I mean, it's it's honestly true that when you get to the point of like the later prophets and the new Testament and you, and like obviously in the letters too, they're barely using their own words. They're all just brilliantly rehashed, remixed mm-hmm. phrases and, and verses from the old Testament that they weave together because they're so saturated with an old Testament understanding, right? Like, man, the stuff that Paul links to little, little notes in like where he'll say a phrase and it'll be a perfect copy from the Septuagint of Job mm-hmm. and, and vice versa. little, Little bits and bobs. I cannot yeah. wait till I get to study this stuff full time in seminary. Yeah, I'm gonna drag your I butt do. to seminary. <laughs> it's gonna be great. Uh, uh, not in this life. Yeah. Maybe in the next life. They got. <laughs> I don't think it'll be a Baptist seminary, but like probably like Reformed or something in heaven. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and and so you know, you talk about okay, we're gonna, we're using Genesis as the uh, punching bag today, but it's not. Um, conservative Christian scholars who come to a different approach of Genesis than you might be aware <clears throat> that you might, the, the approach that you might only have heard of, which would probably be sort of the young earth creationist perspective. Um, it's not that they're saying, oh, the Bible's, you know, we don't take the Bible seriously, and so we're just going to mm. somehow jam science. They're asking, what is the author saying? What is he telling us? 
And if the author wasn't trying to reconstruct a seven-day, uh, 24-hour period, right. then we shouldn't read him like such. And we should say, and so that's the whole question, is what is the author trying to tell us in these texts? Um, Dude, let, let me pause. What you just said is worth pausing, rewinding, and listening again. Because oh, okay. so many people don't understand that. Okay. So many people, when it, when it comes to controversies and different understandings of Genesis in particular, the dominant narrative in, in our circles, unfortunately, is that people going that direction are trying to squeeze out something. Like, they're trying to wiggle their way out of something supernatural or wiggle their way out of six days, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not. At least if they're faithful, right? Mm -hmm. let's, not, let's, let's not get it wrong. There are some people who are definitely trying to do that. Mm -hmm. But what they're trying to do is find what the author intended to say and stay faithful to that. Mm -hmm. And if the author intended, and maybe he did, he, she, it, did. He, probably he, um, probably Moses. <laughs> um, if the author intended, and he might have, that it was a literal creation, the entire episode was a literal six-day event, then we need to honor that because mm -hmm. that's what the author intended. If mm -hmm. not, then not. And that's kind of what the whole debate revolves around of. But I yeah. plead in our circles for a respect for the people who have different points of view than you and listen to them because they often have something to teach you. And even if you end up disagreeing and be like, nah, I'm sticking to my six days, bro, 100%. Yeah. You might learn a little, little thing about Genesis you didn't know before and you can and praise God for that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, and, I, you know, it's... It's it's all. We can all be guilty. We all are guilty of strawmanning mm. other positions. And it, what it means to be a straw man is to like is to make an argument that is weak. Make your take your opponent's argument, make it really weak, and then knock it down and say, "Hey, look, his idea is so bad." But really, you haven't um, constructed a solid version of his argument, and so you're just knocking right. down a straw man. And so, um, uh. I think this this happens a lot. Um, you know, I mean, we don't have to go into this, but I think that this is another good example is growing up hearing that Arminians choose God. And I was just like, wow, who would, like, those those haughty fools, yeah. <laughs> you know? But, man, I started reading, I'm like, that's not what they think at all. Like, they don't think they choose God. <laughs> Dude, the, <laughs> the amount that Arminians and Calvinists have in common is kind of staggering. Yeah. Do do we want to get into Calvinism? Uh, well, it's up to you, bro. <laughs> Dude, let's do this. Right. I, I I'd love to. Shoot, all right, shoot away. What do you what do you what are you what's on your mind? We we had a conversation um where and this is mostly when you have to be your heavy lifting because I'm not I don't understand these subjects nearly as well as you do. I'm a biblical theology guy, not a systematics guy. You would present why someone could be a thoughtful, faithful Christian and not be a Calvinist. Mm -hmm. uh, at, at least yeah. in theory, what that would look like. Yeah. And the point is not to, because you don't believe this and I don't believe this. I have no vested interest in arguing people out of Calvinism. Mm -hmm. That's A, Y, B, Y. No interest in that. And I don't even hold that, right? So it's boring. But I have a very, I have a very, I care very much that people don't people aren't arrogant and i'm preaching to the choir here people aren't arrogant 
in their beliefs, in their theological positions. And I think a huge part of quelling some arrogance is by understanding that the people you disagree with are really thoughtful and can genuinely love Jesus, even if they hold a different theological system than you do. Mm -hmm. So can you do us all a favor and tell us why Arminians (laughs) aren't stupid? Well, or, okay. or, or or just non-Calvinist. Yeah, right. Because I was, you're already framing this because <laughs> you know there, there's there, there will be two kinds of people in the end. Those who go to the right Calvinists and to the left uh, Armenians, <laughs> sheep and goats. No, I'm just kidding. No, no. There, there's uh yeah. There, I mean, there's Calvinists, which in our circles means Reformed, capital R. Um, but yeah, let's let's say uh, Reformed, and then there's non-Reformed views of. And we're we're talking specifically of soteriology, which is uh, the study of salvation, um, right? How God saves us. What are the mechanisms, so to speak? So, and that's important to say as well. This is a, na- a huge. It's important, but it is a narrow discussion and disagreement, right? Mm-hmm. Just that's worth saying. It does. It, it does play out into all areas of a lot of areas of life. But yeah, sure. it is. It's a part of of for sure. Mm-hmm. As in, it's your entire faith doesn't live or die by by Calvinism, via Arminianism, right? Yeah, right, right. No, of course. Um, so maybe a really good place to say is the key difference between a reformed version of grace and and salvation and a non-reformed view. And and I want to be honest, right? The, the Lutherans probably hold a more sort of irresistible grace thing like calvin calvinists but for the rest of christendom catholics orthodox you know uh most most protestants not most Protestants, well like armenians west wesleyans um coptics they all hold to uh a model of grace that is resistible man in his sinful nature and in his hardness of heart can resist god's constant gifts urgings chasing you know god presenting his grace to human beings that is i think what is the ultimate disagreement um and and sort of all other hmm. kind of things you know whether we're saved uncondition uh, elect unconditionally and all that stuff all that kind of stuff kind of plays out like can we lose our faith but at the core of it i think as as far as i understand and, I, and i've done a lot of time reading and think about this is is can we resist God's grace? Right. Um, and this is really important. It's not about choosing God. You know, it's not about you moving into a new neighborhood of 10 trillion people and then saying, oh, I'm going to go to that guy's house. I'm just going to walk in and I'm going to go to his party. You're not choosing to go to, you know, this is somebody who's chasing you down. You know, come to my, come to my, the wedding banquets use gospel literature come and you say no and he says come please please and he's banging on your door for the rest of your life and you just keep pushing him away and he's breaking down he's trying to get you and you just keep saying i'm not interested not interested, not interested right like this is constant rejection it's not um it's not the idea of choosing it because mm. uh, yeah I, I mean the different uh, uh, traditions are going to hash this out a little differently but i just want to make i'm trying to give a, a kind of a, an analogy of what the difference is between choosing God and resisting God. Right. You know. So basically what you're saying is both Calvinists and Arminians, and I'm just going to keep using those terms, even if they aren't the most helpful categories. <laughs> okay. Um, and you can better use better terms if you want. Like we can, mm-hmm. we can figure that out. Both of them believe that God would have to choose you first. Uh, yes. 
God's God's grace must come to you first. There is no way you climbing out of the well by yourself. Right. Which is very important Mm -hmm. because that's a character I've heard of Arminianism is, well, they just believe they can just pick God. Mm-hmm. That's not what. Yeah, I mean, even even uh, you know, Catholics, they do not think that they can choose God. God's mm-hmm. grace must come to them, and this is what is called the doctrine of prevenient grace. Again, there's different ways to articulate this, depending on if you're Wesleyan or, or classical Arminian or Catholic or whatever. But the doctrine of prevenient grace is basically this: after humanity fell, God gave grace to all mankind to respond to Him. He gives them grace. He enables them to respond to them. That's where the difference is in how we understand total depravity. Your mic fell. Oh. Thanks for uh, thanks for pointing that out, bro. Um, what when we think about something, a creature being a human creature being totally depraved, the the, the ultimate difference is is yes. Uh, so imagine like a cup of water, and it's got a drop of black ink in it. Every bit of the cup, uh, every bit of the water is black, but it's still water. Um, now, the the reformed person is going to say, because you are totally depraved, you are totally unable to respond. God must resuscitate a dead corpse, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The non-reformed person is going to say, no, no, no. Because God gives you grace, you are able to respond, but you can continue in an intransigent Modes and transcendent, by what I mean is completely unwilling and resisting right. God's Holy Spirit. Right now, the big question is: Does the Bible provide any support? Because if there's a hardcore Calvinist listening to this, they would go, "Yeah, that's cute," but the Bible clearly says that man, like that, if God picks, then God can't. That man can't resist God. There's no way, right? Um. Um, oh right yeah so i'm just gonna say no um maybe we read the different bible maybe i just read the uh, msg as your one friend uh, the liberal version you know but um i think if i'm pretty sure there are no calvinists (laughs) who are reading the msg my dude yeah so i I think if if there's any theme in scripture that is attested to on every single page it is that man resists god Hmm. you know and and the reform person is going to agree with me here Man resists God and the workings of his Holy Spirit, right? Of, of the Holy Spirit. Um, but I think what's important is um, just let me give you, uh, you want some, so you want some examples of where do, where, where do they get this idea of people resisting God? So, yeah. um, wow, Jesus, you know, after he gives all these, I think so, after he gives all the woes to the Pharisees and the, you know, mm. so be the signs at the end of the times, he says, and and um, wow, what's he quoting? I forget what he's. I think he's quoting Isaiah, but I could be wrong here. Anyways, he says, "Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling." And he's crying. Jesus is crying. Um, you have other passages like Stephen. You know, we talked about Stephen's speech. He says. Um, anyways, he talks about. Because it's a speech of Sanhedrin. Mm. He says, you stiff-necked people, why do you always resist the Holy Spirit? Uh, Paul says, um, you know, Paul talks in in Thess- two Thessalonians about those who refuse to love the truth and rather 
embrace mm. the lie, and so they were not saved. And the devil blinds them because they refuse to love the truth. You have this theme constantly of of, of creatures, human creatures, continually resisting God, and that is why they're not saved. You take you take take for example, really the popular one, Jesus's warning against sinning against the Holy Spirit. He's taught, yeah, I know he's talking to the to the spiritual leaders of his day and he says if you continue to resist my work you continue to attribute it to beelzebub um this will be problematic for you you whoever commits blasphemy against the holy spirit is guilty of the eternal sin jesus is warning there against a continual resistance of the holy spirit's works right Hmm. and so this is just a few passages that talk about people resisting god but what also goes what also is part of the non-reformed view is that God truly wants all to be saved. He really desires that every single person on planet Earth right now and through all of time comes to a saving knowledge of him through Jesus Christ. That is the greatest good for a, for a human being. Mm. That is what gives God most glory is if this creature comes into a relationship with him. Um, so... Well, like, uh, just like one passage, for example, which is in Lamentations 3, is the central passage of Lamentations. And Lamentations is not a very happy book. Mm-hmm. But it, for example, this is like a passage. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring afflic- affliction to anybody. This this is just one passage. I mean, you know, you have God in, in Ezekiel 18 saying... Turn, Israel, turn from your sin and live. Why won't you, you know, why right. will you die, O house of Israel? God God is depicted as begging with his people to turn to turn from their sins over and over again. And so the, the non-reformed person is going to say, we have God begging for people to turn from their sin. And, you know, in First Peter, for the Lord is not willing that any should perish. And then um, you have the, the idea of resistible grace, which is all over scripture that people resist God. And you put those two together, and you get basically a non-reformed view. You know, God, mm-hmm. it's not that God cannot save you. God respects that of the human nature. Because you are made in God's image with wills and, and you know, like volition and, and dispositions and all these things, you're, you're, you're made in God's image. He respects your choice in the end. Mm. And it's not because... He doesn't love you, but it's rather because, again, on non-reformed view, it is such a great good that a creature, a human creature, come freely to God, hmm. rather than being sort of coerced, so to speak, into. And and I know I'm I'm using very quick language here, or very um, you know, trying to be very compressed, <laughs> because clearly what you're talking about has been hashed out by theologians a lot smarter than either of us yeah in yeah. much bigger books than either of us have read for yeah. a long <laughs> long yeah. time this obviously is not a question of god's power mm-hmm. god if he felt so inclined could just zap you're all jesus followers now and yeah we could yeah. zombie our ways to the new creation right but essentially what i guess you're grappling with is god respects the in this view God respects the autonomy and choice of people 
enough and believes that genuine love can only come from some level of choice, even if that's choice only available through God's sacrifice. There's no bootstrapping yourself up here in the Christian life. It is is a free gift from God, Mm -hmm. 110%. But there's some level of which it is God respects the choice of the individual. Yeah, and again, as we talk, it's it's not the ability to choose. God respects the ability of the individual to reject him. Right. You're right. I, this no, is why, I use this the is, same language. This is why you're doing this and not me, because you understand <laughs> this discussion so much better than I do. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I mean I'm going to represent the view well, because I'm just not reformed in my soteriology anyway. But right. I, I think, um, yeah. We, and, and so people might say, yeah, well, you know, Romans 9, um, what do you do about that? Well, given the vast amount of scripture of God trying to work with people, and I'm using God as a character in the Bible. I know God is omniscient and he's not trying in the sense that I'm, but I'm just mm-hmm. using anthropomorphic language here, but God trying to work with his people and they continue to reject him, you know, um, you know, even with, with Moses, God is so angry. He just wants to destroy them. And Moses says, no, let blot my name out. Right. And mm-hmm. God is just so angry, but he, because he's continually working with this resilient people, um, taken all the examples from scripture and God's sort of desire for people to come to know him, which are all other examples. Mm-hmm. You come to Romans nine with that assumption. And it's, it's hard, like for myself, I, I find it hard to have such a reading that is kind of found in the canons of Dort, I think it is. Um, but also, I mean, we, like, I think of the passages that Paul quotes in Romans 9, and he, like, he alludes to Jeremiah 18. And what's, it's actually really interesting, because when you look at Jeremiah 18, is God tells Jeremiah to go to the potter. And what it says there is that, the potter is working with a piece of clay that's not doing what he wants it to. And so he repurposes it for his own, you know, he's like, well, mm. you're not going to do what I want you? Well, okay, I'll just... So God God is sovereign. Like, he, he, you don't want to work with him? He will make you work, so to speak, yeah, you know? Right. Like, and I think the same thing. Like, Pharaoh, oh, you, you know, you're king of Egypt. You're a god to your people. You're going to say no to, to Moses? Okay, I'm going to use your stubbornness. And I'm going to make you more stubborn. And you're just going to continue rejecting me so that I can show my power to you and the other gods of Egypt, so to speak. Um, you know, God uses our own um, unwillingness, our intransigence against us. Mm. But it's not like, th- this again is where the, the, the uh, non-Calvinist says, God does not sort of harden somebody and then beg them to come to him without giving them grace. No, right. he, he does not harden them. The person hardens themselves. Hmm. Um, Circa yeah. Pharaoh. Yeah. BC. Yeah, because people are like, well, God hardens Pharaoh's hearts. Right? They always point to that passage, right? And I know because it's it's in the canons of Dora. It uses that. And Paul uses that. But I think it's important to read look, the actual story. Look at the passage. Because yeah. I know the, the, the New Testament authors, they do use the, the Old Testament in ways where like, oh, how are you using that, right? So I don't want to like pretend like I'm not, I don't know that. But I think it is important to look at the passages he's using, but then also look at how else Paul talks about people refusing to um, 
refusing to come to God. Like, for example, you know, we, we know Romans 1, for this reason, God gave them up to their foolish hearts and desires. It's, again, the, the whole thing is people being bad imagers, right? They sin, they sin, they, they become idolatrous. It's, it's first the humans that rebel, and then God gives them up to their sin, right? right. It's not the other way around, so to speak, as some people want to try to justify right. why God can predetermine uh, some to hell or whatever. Right. right, and the reason we mentioned the Pharaoh story is so many times before God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Mm -hmm. not denying the fact that God does at, at a point mm -hmm. harden Pharaoh's heart quite seriously. Mm -hmm. But first, Pharaoh goes through a series of hardening his own heart. Yeah. Which is really important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, first first mention of Pharaoh, right? This stubborn dude. Uh, Exodus <laughs> this stubborn dude? <laughs> Exodus 3, 19 and 20. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. That's before it says anything about the hardening of heart. Or, mm -hmm. You know, you already, you already got this picture of Pharaoh being a sovereign leader. And remember, like I said, Pharaoh isn't, you know, our neighbor Sandy, who's just this old lady. Like Pharaoh is the king of the Egyptian nation. He is a god to his people. He's going to be cocky. <laughs> you know, some yeah. bearded man says, let my people go. Yeah, I'm going to let all my slaves go for free. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, like obviously right. he's going to be angry. <laughs> totally. So, but anyways. Um, wow. Where are we going with this? <laughs> I, th I think, yeah. So, let's, I think, well, if you want to wrap no, up this. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I think the idea that man can resist God and God says, okay, in the end, you know, as Lewis says, there are two kinds of people where they say to the Lord, your will be done, or the Lord says to them, your will be done. That's kind of understanding of why there's a hell, why people are eternally punished. I want to use the right words here. <laughs> um, uh, is because people reject God. And their rejection is is their choices are incompatible with God mm. determining them. That's very yeah. important because I know some people are going to say, well, Fred, compatibilism. I know what compatibilism is. But again, this is, yeah. Anyways. All, uh, all questions can be also forwarded to Fred. I'm sure you'll <laughs> be able to flood people with, uh, with, this, with uh, various papers and books they can read <laughs> if they want to expound on this more. And again, yeah. like, I... I have these conversations and I think we both do with, with a bit of a half grin because we know we're not original, right? Yeah. You're right, just regurgitating right. a lot of very smart people that you've read mm -hmm. and it's not like you're like breaking ground here, slight disagreement with Calvinism because yeah. I'm so smart. It's like, no, these discussions have been having, have been had yeah, by yeah. smart people forever. Yeah. Well, for 500 years. Yeah. And, and you know what? <laughs> this is my last thing. For those who might feel guilty, like free will is some sort of bad thing, the idea that I'm proposing is far by far more the historic position in the church. Um, the church fathers like believe that you know we have a will that is free and that God leaves us to our sin in the end if we continue to reject Him. It's not sort of you know this new view that came out with Jacob Arminius and like, no, no, this is a very old view. It goes back like within the first few centuries of Jesus. So yeah. Anyways. 
it's hard having a conversation <laughs> like this when you have so much in the back of your mind I that know, you want to try and articulate. Oh, like I can hear you struggling with your terms because you're like, ah, I wish I had 10 minutes to define what I actually mean by this. Yeah. Um, the yeah. eternal struggle of, of people who learn a lot about a subject is trying to synthesize it. And maybe that just comes with wisdom and, and more understanding. Right. Yeah. So I got a, I think, uh, I don't know how long you want this to be, but I think a cool thing to just a question is how, why do you, why are you interested in like doing podcasts, but like reading and like, mm. what would you say if you could give three reasons that you do this? Reading or the podcast? Well, really that you care about this besides your half an hour on Sunday. <laughs> oh, Chris, the Christian walk. Yeah. And understanding God, knowing God. Lack of meaning and lack of purpose is freaking cancer. Hmm. So, and this is true. This is hugely true. When I worked in advertising, I have a phrase that I've used a lot. Um, alcohol and Buddhism go really well together. Because hmm. I had a lot of friends. They were Buddhists because they needed some degree of spirituality in their life. Mm -hmm. And they needed alcohol to drown out the rest. <laughs> Their lives yeah. sucked. Oh, yeah. And they had, they had cool lives, but their lives sucked. Mm -hmm. Such a lack of purpose, lack of meaning. And when I realized, God showed me that there's nothing. It's not even a frame of there's nothing more important. It is you follow Jesus. How dare you do anything else with your life, but make everything about your life devoted around me. Mm -hmm. me being God, God mm -hmm. talking to me, if you will. Um, that's what, that's what hit me. Mm. And I, and I, and I, for me, um, God's given me a brain that can deal with these kind of things and a temperament that allows me to have these conversations. So that's my way of doing it. Um, but yeah, it just has to be all about Christ. What, what, what else am I going to do? And I find so much joy and purpose from that. Mm. Um, and, and, yeah, what else am I going to do with my life? It almost doesn't seem like it's a choice so much. Mm -hmm. Funny off our conversation of free will, but I just feel <laughs> I feel compelled. Like this is the yeah, yeah. thing I have to do. And yeah, then yeah. I read books because uh, I feel guilty in a weird, weird way because God has given me this ability to consume information. Mm -hmm. Again, how dare I chill on a couch and play Call of Duty, which I actually do a fair amount on my phone. <laughs> colossal waste of time um but man those 15 minutes it's rounds, part of your sanctification bro <laughs> those 15 minute rounds can just suck you in but how dare i waste the brain that god gave me and waste the time that god's given me and the ability to read that god's given me and not consume information and i take in information because i want my tool belt of experiences and ideas and concepts and knowledge to be so broad because that's how i can help people when people come to me with this, like people have come to me with questions about something, I can be like, hey, look, I mean, I've never fought in a world war, but I read these six books and I have this insight. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's helpful to you, right? That's why I read books in general and theological books in specific because, heck, you know, learn everything about the God that has saved your life, right? Mm -hmm. That's really important. Um, why do I do this podcast? I, 
I have been given the craziest blessing in the world. And that is so many cool friends mm. like you. <laughs> and we get to sit, we get to sit munching McDonald's after roots, <laughs> chatting about these kind of conversations. Yeah. And I am always just thinking like, I'm so phenomenally lucky to know you, to know mm. Jesse and know Owen, know blah, 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 all these mm-hmm. people. And I'm an extroverted enough that I'm going to be able to have access to other people who I don't know that well. Right. And I, and God's given me an ability to communicate. So I want to have people on to draw out meaning and value so that people can, you know, be living their life. And and hopefully I can provide something, something of value with these conversations. And I honestly believe we've been chatting for an hour and 45 minutes. I honestly believe the things that we've talked about are helpful. Maybe Mm. they'll be challenging. Maybe they'll be difficult. Um, Maybe I'll get some hate mail. Maybe you will too. Hopefully more than me. But I think we've, I think we've talked, I think we've taken, here's what I like. You've spent a redonkulous amount of time reading books. (laughs) And now we've got a little bit of time to distill some of our favorite things into an hour and 45 minutes. And if someone gets inspired by that, they can then go and to those books and learn more and and grow. And hopefully it just encourages someone. We love Jesus and we love the depths of studying his Bible. Right. Yeah. Those are my long answers to your quick question. No, that's good. Thanks for asking though. No. And you know, this kind of tired, but like if you come to a different conclusion, but you're on fire Mm. for Jesus, I think that's the main thing. Um, You know, I have a friend who had a, a pretty much a miraculous conversion. Like I knew him before years ago and he was not a Christian and, and I met him recently and he's just, everything is God and Jesus. And, you know, he's, he was very influenced by a very popular figure who's a staunch reformed thinker when it comes to sort of salvation, all the things. And it's I probably, Piper. <laughs> um, I like, I, I love John Piper. I'm, I'm probably going to disagree with a lot of that, but I'm just so excited that mm. he is like, he's just on fire. Like it was just, it was a completely different person. Totally. Um, you know, and I think you talked about this in the past before. Like, we got to remember that even if we disagree with the person that or who they were shaped by, we must mm-hmm. if if they are sanctified and they are sort of well saved and then drawn closer and being conformed, being yeah. partakers of Christ's image more and more through this person, then we should be thankful and grateful totally. even if we disagree maybe with whatever view xyz that they're really passionate about mm-hmm. or i really want to be careful in my criticism of certain especially well-known pastors if i have them first of all how dare you i'm freaking 23 like, what am I <laughs> right. say against? but also i i, I have a, I have a couple in mind who i've got some pretty big beefs with actually mm. on my own little little mind mm-hmm. but i don't want to criticize them too much because i know those pastors have been so influential in certain friends of mine's lives and they were right, the right, guy right. that you know radio show listening to on the way to work that really got them to grapple with their faith mm-hmm. who cares about my theological quibbles yeah, but yeah that yeah. person was huge for them yeah and i respect and one of the things that i respect you about is we met here at a homeless shelter mm-hmm. where we homeless shelter um, drug rehab center <laughs> whatever we want to call this place we hang out with homeless people every yeah. week and we love it like it's awesome yeah they're friends of ours and you do not sit on your butt and read theology textbooks and don't do jack about it. Mm-hmm. You actually come out here and love people like Christ 
gifted. Mm-hmm. That's a huge way that you spend your time and you're passionate about that. And yeah. for me, that's kind of my barometer for finding people who really love Jesus is, do you do it? Like, sure, you know about it. Maybe you can get your ass to church, you know, twice a Sunday and we should all applaud for that. But do you like walk the Christian walk? Yeah. Yeah. And, and huge. it's what's really important is maybe uh, how we see what it means to be saved. I think some people think, yeah, I'm saved. I did what, you know, I said the sinner's prayer, maybe in our context, I did my profession of faith. Now I got my business class to heaven. Ah, sit back and relax. Enjoy mm-hmm. the ride. No, you were saved to be a blessing. Just like Abraham was called to be a blessing in the world, you were saved so that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is your main purpose as a Christian. Not Okay, maybe not main. Like You're being conformed to Christ's image and all that stuff. But it is a large por- portion of your Christian life is to be mm. a blessing in some respect. So if you do serving in your church or you're serving at the homeless shelter or at the food bank or whatever. But you are saying, Jesus, you have given me this time. You've given me these kind of skills, and I want to serve you in this way. Um, I, I, you know, I'm going to be still selfish and probably yeah. do my own things, watch a few hours of Netflix or whatever. But just think about your life. If you say you love Jesus, think about He who gave you so much. Mm-hmm. You know, He gave His life. He became a human. I mean, as J.C. Ryle says, um, God becoming man is worse than man becoming a slug. Jesus became a man for us, you know, and so we, when we become Christians, it is our duty. It is our duty to serve Jesus in some capacity. It is not, I think it is not right, I don't say it really strongly, to just say, I'm a Christian, go to church, and then just sit back and relax for the rest of your life, like in all other aspects. Like Mm. you were called, you know, Um, Paul says, I, Paul, prisoner, urge you to live um, a calling or whatever worthy to the calling to that which you have been called or something like that I'm kind of butchering it but Ephesians mm. 2, 3 or 4 or whatever but you know live a life worthy <laughs> and that's hard it's not fun you know there's times I don't want to come to Roots I'm like I'd really rather be at home and read I don't yeah. want to come to Roots sometimes but read chill with your new baby boy <laughs> Yeah, totally. or whatever. Like you know, I I try to be involved in my church, whether it's setting up or I don't always want to do those things. But I know that serving isn't about me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen, bro. <laughs> Great chat. Yeah. Should we wrap it up here? Yeah, yeah. We can. This has been a good time. Thank you for listening to this podcast's conversation. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it. Consider subscribing and sharing and all that jazz. It's immensely helpful. I'm all about having meaningful, interesting conversations. So if you know of someone I should talk to, hit me up on Instagram at itsthevolk. Have a good one, guys.